to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yordina Asband, our daf of the day, Masachar Rosh Hashanah, daf kaf vav, page 26. So page 26 has two Mishnayot on it. Yordina and I are going to divide them as we've been wont to do. Uh, the first one, which is uh, towards the top, kind of, of Amad Aleph. And we are really now embarking on the mitzvah of Rosh Hashanah, the main key mitzvah of Rosh Hashanah, which is the mitzvah of blowing the shofar. And the mitzvah here is actually organized almost in the way that we might want it to be. Kol ha-shofarot kshirim. Because we start talking about the instrument itself, right? All shofarot, all horns, are kosher, meaning kosher for blowing on Rosh Hashanah. Chutz mishel para, except for the horn that comes from a cow. Because the horn of a cow is called a keren, meaning horn, and not a shofar, also meaning horn. So this is one of those places where the English is not going to be as helpful as the fact that there's this distinction between the terms in Hebrew. And of course, there's a recognition of, (coughs) excuse me, of the cow, the para, as uh, we'll see this uh, shortly, um, why the para would not have the kosher horn for to function as a chauffeur, for to function as so uh, the horn through which one would blow to fulfill the mitzvah of Rosh Hashanah. I'm a Rabbi Yossi. Rabbi Yossi says, one second. All of the chauffeurs are also called Karen, meaning horn. There's a verse in Sefer Yoshua, chapter 6, where it says they'll blow a long blast, right, on the Karen, on the horn, of, and specifically, it's talking about the ram, meaning, which is the same animal that gives us the shofar of the shofar for Rosh Hashanah. So, Rebiosi's question calls, the second half of the Mishnah calls into question the statement of the first half of the Mishnah, which is a pretty big deal, especially because then the Mishnah stops, and there's no resolution of this at this point. Meaning, we've got a claim, a position about all the shofars are kosher for the blow shofar for Rosh Hashanah, except for the one of the cow, and the claim of why that's not okay is because it's called a Karen. So then doesn't that make it, shouldn't that make it that anything that's called a Karen be unkosher for blowing on Rosh Hashanah? And the answer is, well, that cannot be because all shofarot are also called Karen. So we need to unpack this, but we have to wait until the Gemara gets to it to be able to do so because it's not addressed in the mission itself. So the Gemara addresses it right away, right? Because, of course, and the Gemara says, Rebiosi makes a good point, right? Meaning he's got a convincing argument. And of course, the Mishnah seems to find it convincing also because it doesn't answer it up. So the rabbis say as follows, meaning not just Rebiosi's position, but Chazal as a group take the position that all shofars are called shofar. And all shofars are also called karen. But that which comes from a cow is called a karen, and it is not called a shofar, meaning almost everything, almost every animal's horn can be called by either shofar or karen. But the cow horn is only called karen and not shofar. So we've got this verse from Dvarim, from Deuteronomy, which is the, it's in the brachot. Moshe's brachot to the, to the tribes. This is the firstborn bull, right? The ox um, had the grandeur of his horns, and the karnera aim, the, uh, the, the 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 horns of a wild ox. 
Okay, sorry. So it's the, we're talking about the firstborn is described as a bull, and that his, that's his grandeur, and then his horns, Karnav, are the horns, Karne, of a re'em. A re'em is a wild ox. So again, here we've got a bull, meaning the same family as a cow, called Karen, and they're not called a shofar. But Rebiosi himself could have said to you, there is a place where the horns of a cow is called a shofar, namely, because we've got another verse in the in Sefer Tilim, where specifically it says um, uh, that it will please God better than an ox bull. What's an ox bull? Shor par. And then, im shor lama par. Why does this verse have to say shor and also par? That seems redundant, meaning it's explicitly redundant. Vim par lama shor. Why do you have both of them? Elamai shor par, mi shofar. So it's a wordplay that tells you that shor and par together were understood to be shofar. And therefore, don't worry that you've got a cow's horn that's called Karen. You can also call it shor par, meaning shofar, which is perhaps a stretch, meaning, I say this lightly, but the idea here is to say the Gemara doesn't want Rabbi Yossi's, um claim against the against against the position that the cow's horn cannot be used as a shofar for Shoshana. It does not want to be able to knock down Rabbi Yossi. Um, so they're trying it with like I would say rather difficult ways, right? To say shorpar is a shofar, okay. Um, Rabbanan, and then how are Rabbanan? What did Rabbanan say recently? Again, they said that everything is, can be called either shofar or Karen, except for that of a cow. So, what did Rabbanan say? Kidderav Matana. What did he say? The Amar of Matana, my shorpar, shuhu gadol kapar. He's got a different understanding of this phrase of shorpar, this ox bull, right? Um, rather, he says what it means is it's a, it's a, it's as large. As a cow, it's a it's called a shore from the time that it's born. You know, a baby ox is still a baby ox. Shuhugadol kapar, and here it says he's going to be he's going to be as large as a bull, even when it's still a youngster of an animal. Okay, so I'm actually going to pause here and jump ahead a little bit because the Gemara then goes delves deeper into this uh, rationale and part of the reason. And I think that some of you certainly have already jumped there and you're thinking, even if you haven't seen it already on the daf is it describes this concern about the par, right, para, that we're not going to have a Karen of the para. Why is it that the Karen of the para, the horn of the cow, is not used for Rosh Hashanah? I'm actually going to, sorry, I said I was going to jump ahead. I'm going to read one more bit here before jumping ahead. Ula Amar, Hainu This is what Ula said for the rationale of the rabbis, they're holding like Rav Chista, the Amar Rav Chista, why is it that the Kohen Gadol would not enter into the Holy of Holies wearing the golden garments uh, when he goes into to the Kodesh Kodeshim to do the Yom Kippur service? We had this a long time ago. We had this, um, I don't know, your Dana, you talked about this some time ago, that a Sanegor, a, a Kategor is not made a sanegor. The kategor is the prosecutor. The sanegor is the advocate, the defender, right? And the concern here, which is not stated, but you have to understand it, right, is that the moment you're talking about gold, gold, right, gold and worshiping by the high priest, the immediate um, connotation is to the, uh, the sin of the golden calf. 
And there we go. The sin of the golden calf, calf coming from the family of the cow, cow being the animal from which we're not going to take a horn to blow on Rosh Hashanah because, hello, it's like a reminder in Katagor Nasesarigor. You can't have the same, you know, the same um, animal through which the most grievous uh, national hate National sin was done, namely the golden calf. We're not going to allow any remembrance of that to come before God on Yom Hadin, on the day of Rosh Hashanah, or for that matter, Yom Kippur. Right. So the idea here is, and this goes it carries its way through more of Amaralaf, is this um, rejection of the cow's horn, not because of this wordplay of shore pyre, and not because you can't call a uh, Karen a shore or a shore a Karen, but specifically because we don't want cow's horns because we don't want anything from a cow to kind of remind God, as it were, of the national sin and let that be held against us, you know, put God in a grumpy mood, as it were. I understand that all of this is, you know, anthropomorphism in terms of talking about God, but this is, but that's the symbolism here of these, of the difference of why we're not going to accept, um, why we're not going to accept a Karen, meaning specifically the horn of the cow for the mitzvah of Shofar. Okay. And now I'm going to jump to the latter part of Ahmed Aleph and moving on to Ahmed before I turn it over to you, Yardina, for the second Mishnah, where we end up with a discussion about this kind of wordplay, meaning the phenomenon of wordplay itself. Um, we've got a statement here of Rabbi Kiva, Amar Rabbi Kiva, Kishalachti Legalia, Hayu Kolin Lenida Galmuda. He goes to a place called Galia, and there he hears that they called a menstrual woman Galmuda, right? And the question is, what exactly does this mean? My galmuda gmula dami bala. So the again, it has to be parsed. You know, these this term that doesn't seem to have, I don't know, any other other meaning. It says that she is separated from her husband, which is of course the status of a menstrual woman. So he says he also went to Africa. And in Africa, he heard that they called a ma'a, a ma'a is a certain coin. They would call it a kisita. Um, and so then the guy wants to know, like, so who cares? I mean, so they call it a different coin, right? What's the, what's the practical difference of coin, calling it a ma'a or calling it a kisita? And then the guy answers that this explains what's going on in the Torah when it talks about me'a which is me'a danke, which is a hundred ma'a, right? All of it is different terminology for the same coins, which we then can understand the story of Yaakov's purchase of a field because of the way the biblical text says it, me'a If we didn't know that the ma'a, this word of the coins, is linked up with this, the same phrasing in Africa, then we might not know what that word is in um, the Bible and the Torah. So the fact is, here we've got, you know, Rabbi Akiva drawing on linguistic comparison from, you know, an African language to get to the biblical text understanding. It's a very fascinating um, manner of parshanut, and it's very modern, meaning this is one of the things that biblical scholars do is they do compare the cognate roots and so on of the words in the Torah with words from the other languages that we know to be very old that were in the area at that time. So it's kind of interesting, I think, to see it by Rabbi Kiva. But this wordplay or this parsing of words 
based on what they sound like or based on a meaning that then gives us another meaning, which I might not have known. It goes on through here, um, really through, there's several different examples of it and it's worth reading just for the interest of it, especially if this kind of wordplay can, it can get a little bit, um, I don't know, like you're wandering into the muck because there's so much that's just paying attention to this phrasing versus that phrasing. It's not like there's dramatic narrative or there's clear-cut halacha, but it is interesting to me, I think, that there's going to be a discussion of exactly what do the words mean if you don't know what the words mean and you have to kind of survey whatever you can find to help you know that, you know, to, to find the meanings. And then lastly, Yardana, before I go give this over to you, um, now I'm on I'm a bet. There's a whole discussion, and and still we're talking about unusual words, right? Lo The Chazal did not know the word, the meaning of serugin. Now I can tell you, because I've learned this in the context of halacha. Even serugin really ends up being meaning like alternately, um, you know, or intermittently. I'm sorry, piske piske. So what happens? They heard the servant, a female servant, in Rabbi Huda's house. <coughs> excuse me, Rabbi Huda Nasi's house, and he's and she's talking to Chazal. She's talking to the sages, whoever it is who were there, right? And she sees them come into the house, but they didn't come in, or like in a in a big clump of people. They came in piece piece one at a time, and she says, Amralhu ad How long is it going to take you to come in? Like intermittently, like this, you know, one and then a pause and then another and then a pause or two or whatever it was going to be. Right? That the idea is that there's intervals here. So they understood, they chazal say, Oh, now we know what this word means because this servant here used the term seirugin to describe this interval entrance, and now we get it. Which of course is interesting that she's using a word that Chazal themselves did not really know, which is I guess a question of, you know, what's being spoken, what's the spoken language, what's the, what's, <clears throat> what would they, what term would they have used to mean intervals? I don't know. But this seems to be the, the way, certainly the common, the commoners would have spoken. Yordana, you pointed this out in preparation, that they're really pulling the meanings of the words from the way they were used in a more colloquial way. So I'm, I am curious to know what the more formal, you know, the, what would have the word of the educated class be? I don't have an answer to that. And then it goes on. They didn't know that word either. So what happens? The same, I don't know if it's the same servant, but there's a another female servant or it's the same one. In Rebuda Nasi's house, and he said, and she says to a particular man, "What does she see that he's scattering their purslane plants?" And he said, and she says, "How long?" Amrale ad matai ata mifazer chalaglot. It's a it's a it's a tongue twister word. Chalaglogcha, right? How long are you going to scatter this chalaglogot? And so then they say, "Oh, chalaglogot means purslane." Now, purslane also does not necessarily mean something to me particularly, but it's a but I can look that up, right? And that's a plant that um, is spreads. It grows close to the ground. It has small yellow flowers, and it grows wild. Um, and and it was grown as food. I Meaning it was it was I guess foraged as food, and then it's eaten raw, and it can be pickled or and you know I'm getting this all from from notes, you know. But the point is 
that Chazal didn't know this term until they understood that as she sees somebody um, with the same plant, then they learn that the term applies to the plant. Um, and, and likewise, there's one more, Lo Rabbanan, my and again, the same thing where they didn't know the term and they heard the maidservant in Rebun and Asis again say the same thing. He's, he's, and she says, um, How long are you going to stand curling your hair? And then suddenly they go, like, Oh, now we get it. He's curling his hair. The word misalsel means to curl. So the, the Gemara here, and, and there's several more of these, you know, again, where the same the same phenomenon of the maidservant providing the translation or the explanation of these unknown terms. My question is, you know, these terms are unknown. The terms that are unknown become known to us by virtue of the fact that Chazal got the meaning in this way through the maidservant, right? It's not as if we've got some like list of unknown terms somewhere else. And then lo and behold, they, they, we knew that they were only just waiting for meanings and suddenly they get them. So I find the whole list here to be rather fascinating, certainly off topic from the shofar. Um, I understand we get from the wordplay there to the wordplay here, but it's, it's um, you know, this idea of the Gemara providing a dictionary for un, you know, unusual words is an interesting function that's not the most common. Right. And the fact that it sort of comes from like a commoner, that's how you get the definition. It's not, you know, going to the Beit Midrash and saying, did anybody know that word? I think it's like they want to hear how it's being used by common people. And from there, that's how they learn it. Um, uh, the, the only difference I would say about that is, is that many of those maidservants do live in Chazal's homes. So is that a factor into that? I don't know. But, I, but you know, one of those things, like it's a question. I'm not sure I have time with it because it's staff Yomi. Um, I'm going to move on now then to uh, the Mishnah that we have on the staff. Um, and it has one really interesting point. Well, many, but the Gemara has an interesting point that I want to share afterwards. So the mission now is going to go into a description of the different types of shofars there were that were used during different times of year. Now, I think this mission is interesting because we really just associate shofar with Rosh Hashanah, but actually shofars were used multiple times during the year and they actually looked different depending on when you were using it. So the shofar of Rosh Hashanah, uh, we say, had to be from, you know, the, the Ya'el. Um, I guess in English, people call this the Ibex. And it's, um, the point is that it's actually a straight horn, which we'll talk about a little bit more later. And the mouthpiece was actually plated in gold. You know, we don't do that today. And when it was blown, the two trumpets were on the side. Okay. Now, remember, this is a description of what happened in the Beit HaMikdash. So the shofar would make a long blast and the trumpets would sound a short blast because the mitzvah of the day was shofar. Whereas when you had to blow a shofar on a public fast day, which we'll learn all about in Masachat um, those are made from the curved horns of rams and their mouths were plated with silver. And in that case, the two trumpets were in the middle of the shofar road. Shofar mikatser v'chatzotot ma'arichot. And the shofar would blow the short blast and the chatzotot would be long. Shemitzvah yom v'chatzotot. Because the mitzvah there was for the chatzotot. 
And then finally, the Mishnah concludes that the Jubilee year, the Yovel year, is the same as Rosh Hashanah in regards to the shofar blasts that are sounded, right? And also with additional blessings that are in the Amidah prayer. Rabbi Yehuda, Mer, Rosh Hashanah, Tokin, Bishel, Scharim, Ubi Yovlot, Bishel, Yelin. Rabbi Yehuda says there's a difference between the days. And Rosh Hashanah, you use a horn of a ram, which is what we actually do today. Whereas in Yobel, you only use the horn of the ibex. So it, it's interesting because this is not how we practice today, right? The Tanakama says to use the one of the Yael. That's not what we use. Um, but also the idea that there were different shofarot for different holidays or purposes is interesting. And so the Gemara goes in and discusses this a little bit more, right? That Rabbi Amar Rabbi Levi mitzvashal Rosh Hashanah b'shal Yom Kippurim b'kifufin b'shal Kol Shana b'vifshutin. So Rabbi Levi says the mitzvah Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur of the Yovel years to blow with a curved shofar, and the rest of the year you blow with a uh, with a straight shofar. And then the Gemara says v'hatnan shofar shal Rosh Hashanah shal Yael Pashut. So then the Gemara says, wait, that doesn't make sense. In Rosh Hashanah we use the horn of according to the Tanakam of the Yael, and that's straight. So the Gemara basically answers that Rabbi Levi's statement, right, is in accordance with the opinion of which Tana of Rabbi Yehuda, right? Because Rabbi Yehuda teaches in a brisa, right? Right. So that Rabbi Yehuda says on Rosh Hashanah we use the curved horns of the ram, right, which is really what the end of our mission says as well. And we use the straight horns on Yobel for, uh, uh, of the Yael. Um, and so then the question is, but my come up later. Like, what are they actually, what are the Tanaim actually disagreeing about? Mar Sabah Barush Hashanah, Kama Dekayev Inish Datei, right? Tapi Ma'alei. Ubiyoma Kibrim, Kama Defashi Inish Datei, Tapi Ma'alei. So I thought this was a beautiful explanation of what's going on here. One sage, and this is the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda, right? He holds on a Rosh Hashanah, a person bends his mind. In other words, you're humbling yourself by bending in prayer. That's better. So therefore, you're going to use the curved shofar. But in Yom Kippur, you sort of want to have a straight mind. You pray. Some of the Farshim say you just pray sort of simply. And therefore, you use the straight, uh, you're going to use the straight shofar. Because remember, the Yovel blowing took place on Yom Kippur, right? Umar Savar, right? And the other sage, the, the Tana, the, the, the Tanakama of our Mishnah here, Right, but Rosh Hashanah kama defashi inish date tafim ale ubetaniot kama dekayv inish date tafim ale. And Rosh Hashanah, the more a person straightens his mind, the better. You don't want to be crooked in any way, right? So that's why you would use the the one of the the uh, of the uh, the ibex the, the 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 sorry you you want to use the straight one, right? And on fast, a person sort of bends his mind. He humbles himself in prayer. And that's what's going to be better. And uh, and therefore, you're going to use the curve one. So I just thought it was a lovely explanation that really talked about the different states of mind that we have when we approach these days, right? It's not just about using different shofars, but the shofar, whichever one you use, is supposed to reflect what your mindset is supposed to be as you experience that day that you're supposed to blow the shofar for. Which I think is really interesting in the context of, you know, the, sh- the, the, when we usually, when we think about intent and the move, how a shofar can move us, we think about the tekiot, we send, we think about the sound, right. Rather than the actual instrument itself. 
I don't know, maybe instrument's not the right word, but the I mean it here as the vessel of 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 the mitzvah, as opposed to a musical instrument. Um, although technically, I guess it is also a musical instrument. And here, I think everything you've just said, Yordana, kind of speaks to the fact that the function, the the role of the instrument itself, um, also also informs our attitudes and our intention and so on. And it's not just the sound. Right. It's not just the sound. It's the intention. And I think that's a great point because we often think of it as the sound. And this is telling us that the form itself is important. So, you know, something different to think about the next time we hear Shofar and Shul. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talent Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.